0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I was younger, I used to play a game. Maybe some of you boys have played this game. Maybe some girls too. I don't know, or something like it. And this game was there would be a little hill, or a, or a big rock, or a stump that you could you could you could stand on, and as as a group of boys, you you would fight to be the only one on it. And whoever got everybody else off would would as he was standing up up top, he would say something, he would almost sing it, he would, he would say, I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascals, and it would be a challenge, it would, there would be a battle, you see, for supremacy, because the, the boys would then come and they'd try to push him off, and, and another boy would try to get on to be king instead. Now, whatever you might think of that game, it's, it's a pretty accurate picture of our hearts by nature. We, by nature, want to be supreme. We want to be the highest. We want to be the greatest. We want to be the best. We want to be able to control other people. We want to be in charge. And if we can't manage that, if we can't win the battle for supremacy, then we'll, we'll at least fight to pull down whoever's on top to our level. That's what we do by nature. Apart from the grace of God. And we tend to do that not just in relation to other people, but even in relation to Jesus Christ. As sinners, we want to be supreme over Him, or at least pull Him down to our level. That's basically what you're doing when, when you resist Him, when you suppress His word, when you, when you refuse to heed His call to come to Him. When you do that, you're really saying, I'm king, I'm supreme, And Jesus isn't. He's not anyone important. But you know, even as Christians, even as believers, even when we have bowed the knee to Jesus and embraced him as our Savior, we can struggle still. We can struggle with his supremacy. Otherwise, we would never have any struggles with sin. We would never let the busyness of life, the busyness of kids, the busyness of of work result in Jesus Christ taking a back seat. Even, yes, congregation, even our struggle to find comfort, our struggle to rest in the Lord in times of doubt and temptation, in trials and in troubles, is often closely connected to our, our imperfect grasp, our imperfect understanding, of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and how thankful then we should be how thankful we should be for the names of Jesus and especially the two names that we hope to focus on together this evening over the past couple of weeks we've been looking at Jesus names the the names of God rather God the Son and children Maybe I can ask you, what two names have we looked at so far in the last couple of weeks? Do you, do you remember? What are two names of God the Son? Well, One of them is, is Jesus, right? That's an easy one. It's an easy one. It means the Lord saves. And there's, there's another one too, the last one we looked at, Christ. It means anointed. The anointed one. And the Bible mentions many other names of of God the Son, of of Jesus Christ, and and all of them help us to understand more of who He is. But tonight, in in line also with our catechism and our confession of, of faith, we want to focus on just two more names. The only begotten Son of God and our Lord. Because what both of these names highlight congregation, and, and this comes out in the, in the catechism's explanations of them also in Lord's Day 13, what they highlight for us is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's why, though, I, I thought about dividing this up into two sermons. It seems a little bit unfair to, to, to do one sermon on Jesus and one sermon on Christ, and then two sermons on the Son of God and, and Lord. I thought about dividing it up, but I decided to do both names in one sermon because both of them point to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as God's son and our Lord and that'll be our theme so as we look at these names also in light of the passages we read John 1 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 as well as others we hope to note three things three things they teach us about Christ's supremacy first of all we'll Focus in our first point, especially on his name as the only begotten son. And we'll note there his unique supremacy. Especially through, through that name. And secondly, then focusing more on his, his being our Lord, calling him our Lord. We'll focus on his rightful supremacy. And then thirdly, we'll talk about his comforting supremacy. So first, let's notice how, how these names highlight the unique supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is called the only begotten Son of God and our Lord. And our focus, as I mentioned, will be on his being only begotten here, but but just note that his identity as our Lord certainly implies his unique supremacy because what does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 6? No man can serve two masters. You, You can't do it. That's the same word there. You can't serve two lords. There is and can be only one Lord. But the Catechism especially emphasizes His his unique supremacy in connection with His name, the only begotten Son of God. And question 33 really explains the reason for that emphasis. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since, since, here's the reason why we're asking this question, we are also the children of God. In other words, what's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus Christ as God's Son and ourselves? True believers as God's children. How is He unique? That's what the term only begotten literally literally means. It means He's the unique, the special, the uniquely begotten, the special, one-of-a-kind Son of God. But what makes Him unique? Why is He called that? And the answer given in the Catechism is this, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. But we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. What a difference. What a contrast. Jesus Christ is uniquely supreme as a Son of God. That's what this name, the only begotten Son of God, tells us. He is uniquely supreme, uniquely superior to us. Because in the first place, his, his being the only begotten Son of God means He's the only eternal, eternal Son of God. Now the term only begotten, I mentioned already, it doesn't, in, it, when it's used in the Bible, it doesn't literally mean an eternal Son. In Luke 7, we read about Jesus raising the only Son of a certain widow from the dead. It's the same word, only begotten, only Son. And there are, other, there are other examples too, not just in Luke, but also in, in Hebrews. Hebrews 11 verse 17 refers to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. So, so by itself, we need to understand this, only begotten does not mean eternal. It means uniquely, uniquely begotten. But the Bible makes clear that part of what makes Jesus the, unique, the uniquely begotten son of God is that he's the eternal Son of God. Here I invite you to have your Bibles open with me to John chapter 1, which we read earlier. John begins there in John 1 by by talking about the Word, doesn't he? The Word that was in the beginning. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. The Word that was in the beginning with God. The Word through whom all things were made, and without whom was made not one thing that was made that's the word but it's very clear as you keep reading in the chapter the word is not a thing it's a person the word is jesus he is the word made flesh verse 14 that's jesus jesus as the word is god he's that means he's outside of creation he's outside of time he's eternal in John 1 verse 15 John the Baptist says that Jesus was before him even though he came chronologically as a human after after John and that implies again that he is eternal and there there are other texts i could mention that say the same thing and that's why congregation that's why the teaching the teaching of both the Jehovah's witnesses and the Mormons are wrong They both teach in different ways, but they both essentially teach the same thing. That Jesus, before he became man, was the first created being. A congregation, Jesus cannot be a created being. And at the same time, be the word through whom all things were made. You you can't put that together. We need to understand that. Jesus Christ is the eternal, the uncreated Word. He is God. But then in verses 14 and 18, we learn that this eternal person, this eternal divine Word is also the only begotten, the unique Son of God. Look at what John writes in, in verse 14. He says there, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And he says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then in verse 18, he writes this. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared Him." He's talking about Jesus here. So John tells us that Jesus not only is the Word, he is not only God, he is also the only begotten, the unique Son of God. But again, we must press further. What makes him unique as the Son of God? And John John doesn't tell us explicitly in this passage. He doesn't spell it out specifically, but he does imply it. Because look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. He, that's Jesus, the Word, the Light, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to what? To what? To become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Did you catch the clue there? It's in that word, become. Believers are given the power, they are given the right to become children, to become sons of God. But notice what John doesn't, John doesn't say that about Jesus. He doesn't say that about the only begotten. He never says Jesus became God's son or that he was given the power to become God's son. He describes him simply as the only begotten son of the Father. And that implies what? It implies, congregation, that He's not just the eternal, uncreated, divine Word. He's not just the eternal, uncreated God. He's also the eternal, uncreated, divine Son of God. He's unique. Do you know, do you know, children, John 3, verse 16? Do you know that verse? For God so loved the world that He what? Does it say that He created His only begotten Son? Is that that the word? Does it say that God so loved the world that he, He gave birth to a son? Does it say that God so loved the world that He adopted a son? No. It says that God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. He so loved the sinful world that he freely gave, he sent the one who was his only begotten son, the son, the one who was from all eternity. He gave His eternal Son to become our flesh. He gave His eternal Son to become a sacrifice for the sins of man. He gave His eternal Son to die in the place of sinners. Christ is the eternal Son of God. That's what makes John 3.16, John 3.16. That's what makes the God's love for the sinful world so overwhelming, so breathtaking. And that's also what makes Jesus Christ so uniquely supreme. Because he is the only, the only eternal Son of God. And that highlights, congregation, that highlights for us his essential, his vital importance. It highlights his, his glory. And it highlights how crucial it is that we listen to him then. This is my beloved Son, God said of Jesus. Hear Him. How crucial it is that we believe in Him, that we obey Him. Do you? Do we? He alone is the eternal Son of God, and He alone is also the natural Son of God. That's the other thing that makes Him unique, and therefore also supreme. And again, we we can draw this from the contrast in John 1 between believers who become the children of God and Jesus who is the Son of God, the only begotten one. The point in verses 12 and 13 of John 1 is that we are not, we are not, and we do not become children of God by nature. John is writing here a little bit also against the Jews. The Jews. Because the Jews in Jesus' day and, and still in John's day and, and others too, they, they thought, they, they, they presumed that they were God's children because of their natural descent, their physical descent from Abraham. You can read about that later in John. But, but, but John is emphatically saying here already in the beginning of his gospel, no, no, you don't become a child of God by being a Jew, by being physically descended from Abraham. And the same is true today, congregation. No one is saved. No one becomes a child of God by being born into a Christian family. We become children of God by grace, God's regenerating grace alone. We become children of God through faith in Christ, the only begotten Son, alone. But with Jesus Christ, you see, we aren't sons of God by nature. We aren't children of God by nature. But with Jesus Christ, it's different. Christ is. He is the natural Son of God. He is the one in the bosom of His Father. He is God Himself. John states that clearly when he says the Word was God. And that's why when the Word was made flesh, when when God, God was made man and dwelt among us, John says that they beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. and Hebrews 1 verse 3, it, 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 it explains that even more. It describes Christ the Son as the brightness of God's glory and the express image, the exact representation of God's, of, of God's person, God's nature. That's what makes Him unique. That's what sets Him apart. He alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. That's what makes Him uniquely supreme. Now, I realize that's a lot of teaching. It's a lot of instruction. And it's maybe hard for us to understand, especially for for our children. But do you see what it's teaching us? It's teaching us how much we need Jesus. How much, how much also we owe him. He's the only one who can show us the Father because He is God's only begotten. He is God's eternal and natural Son. Oh, how much then, how much then, congregation, we should honor Him, we should respect Him, we should trust Him, and we should live for Him. Oh, do not neglect Him. Do not neglect Him then. Don't make excuses for refusing to come to Him in faith. in congregation... It is a great privilege. It is a great privilege as believers to be God's children, to become like Jesus in that sense. But let's always remember, let's never forget that Jesus Christ is not our equal. He is not God's Son the same way we are. He is supreme. He alone is the eternal and the natural Son of God. If I can use an illustration, and I mean no disrespect, I mean it with all reverence. He is, as it were, the king of the castle. But the wonderful, the amazing thing is, congregation, that as the king of the castle, he doesn't push us off, but he invites us to join him of course, we by nature, even when He invites us, even when He calls us, we refuse to come to Him because we're not just dirty rascals, we're depraved rebels. But then He also, He sends His Spirit, He gives His Spirit to work faith in our hearts and to graciously draw us to Him. And He makes us, yes, even us, who by nature are children of the devil, children of the wrath of God. He makes us, by faith in Christ, Son children of God. We become adopted, God's adopted children for Christ's sake. Oh, then, beloved, let us never forsake Him. Let us never dishonor Him, but let us humbly worship and trust and love and obey Him. Not just as God's Son, but also as our Lord. You see, the supremacy of Jesus Christ is not only a unique supremacy. It's also, and here now we come to our second point, it's also a rightful supremacy. Look with me, if you will, at question 34 in the catechism. The question asks, wherefore or why do you call him our Lord? And the answer it gives is not, it's interesting, isn't it? It's not because he is God or because he made us, even though both of those things are true. In that sense, Jesus is Lord of everything and and of everyone. Also of you here this evening who, who are still rejecting Him, who have not bowed the knee to Him. He is Lord of all in that sense. And one day in the day of judgment, every tongue will confess. Also the tongues that are not confessing it right now, every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if you refuse to do that now, you won't do it with joy. You'll do it. You'll do it while gnashing your teeth. How urgent it is. How urgent it is And that you learn to confess him now as Lord while it's still the day of grace. While, I, I think we're saying something like, while he is near. The sun is near. But the answer, the answer doesn't talk about Jesus as the creator, Lord. Because the question is, It's not, why is he our Lord? The question is, why do you call him our Lord? It's a question to the believer, you see. And the believer's answer is this, why do I call him our Lord? Because, here's the answer, because he has redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, and has delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus has made us his own property. In other words, as believers we confess, we call Christ our Lord and therefore also learn to serve Him as our Lord because we are His, because we belong to Him. He owns us. His supremacy is a rightful supremacy. You see, in the first place, in the first place, Christ has redeemed us, soul and body, from all our sin. That's why he came. Remember why the angel told Joseph to call Mary's son, Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. He came to save his people. But that salvation congregation required redemption. It required redemption. Jesus had to pay a price in order for us to be saved, in order for us to be rescued from our sins. That's what redemption means. It's the payment of a price. Jesus had to pay a price to free us from the guilt we bear because of our sins. He had to pay a price to free us from God's sentence of condemnation on us because of our sins. He had to pay a price to free us from our slavery to sin and Satan. Salvation required redemption. It required the payment of a price. God teaches this. He teaches this in His Word over and over again. That's why it's good to read, by the way, Leviticus and Numbers, even though they can be hard books to read. I just finished Leviticus and, yeah, it's, it's not easy. But you, you read sometimes. You get to chapters where it talks about redeeming. You have to redeem. You redeem. If you redeem, you, you're paying a price. You're paying a price to redeem something, to redeem your tithe, to redeem your property. It's, t- it's teaching us the necessity of redemption. And you can think, think children, of, of when God saved Israel from their slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the, what the last plague, the last plague, the tenth plague was? Do you remember? It was the death of all the firstborn in the land. God was about to save Israel from their bondage to Egypt. But in the last plague, with the last plague, he taught Israel a very important lesson. He taught them that a price had to be paid for their salvation, for their deliverance. You see, God didn't, you know, in some of the plagues, God spared Israel. You remember that? He, 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 he sent the plagues on Egypt and, and he, he made a distinction with Israel. But in the last plague, he didn't automatically make a distinction between Egypt and Israel, did he? He didn't automatically spare Israel from the death of the firstborn the way he spared them from some of the other plagues. He told them that in order to spare their firstborn, a price had to be paid. A lamb without blemish and without spot had to be killed. And its blood had to be applied to the doorframe. Then the Lord would pass over and not allow the destroying angel to come into their houses to smite them. The lesson was clear. Salvation requires redemption. It requires payment. That was the lesson. And congregation at point, you see, it points to our need as sinners. We need to be saved from our sins. But that salvation requires redemption. A price needs to be paid, not to Satan, but to God. Because we're under God's judgment, God's wrath. And here's the problem. Neither we nor any mere creature can do it. You cannot redeem yourself. We need a Redeemer. And the wonderful the wonderful truth is, congregation, that Jesus is that Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son. He has paid the price to free His people, to save His people, to rescue us, soul and body, from our sins and from the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sins. He has bought us. We are His. That's why we call Him our Lord. But what was what was the price of our redemption? Was it ten thousand dollars? Was it a million dollars? Maybe a trillion dollars? Was it all the gold and silver in the world? Was it the blood of all the animals that could be found? No. The price of our redemption the only way we could be saved, congregation, was through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the only begotten Son of God. In order to redeem us, He Himself had to become the sacrificial Lamb without blemish and without spot. And He did. That's what John the Baptist said of Him if we kept reading in John 1. You read in verse and 20, 29 there that, that John sees, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus coming unto him and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, meaning not just of the Jews but also the Gentiles. Christ redeemed us by becoming the sacrificial, the Passover Lamb. He shed his blood for his people. He gave up his life for us. He died. He died. For us. Listen again to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10, which we read earlier. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord, by our Lord, Jesus Christ, who what? Who died for us. Christ has bought us, dear believers, here this this evening. He has redeemed us soul, and body from all of our sins with His precious blood. That's what His death, by the way, that's what Christ's death is all about. That's why we call Him our Lord. We are rightfully His. Not only because He has redeemed us with His blood, but also, also because he, he has delivered us from all the power of the devil. In other words, as believers, we confess that Christ has not only accomplished redemption by, de- by dying on the cross, he also has applied it to us. You know, one of, my, one of my favorite parables doesn't really say in the Bible it's a parable, but it's an illustration, a parable that Jesus tells. He tells it in Luke 11. Jesus, there, he had just cast out a demon of a, of a man. A demon that made the man unable to speak. And he cast the demon out and the man was healed. And, and, he, and he started speaking. And people saw and they, they saw what had happened. And some of them wondered. Maybe this is the Messiah. But, but then others, they, they accused him. They said, he's casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. He's casting demons out by Beelzebub. And Jesus responded. He responded by pointing out how ridiculous that accusation was. Why would Satan cast out Satan? He'd be destroying his own kingdom. But then then he starts talking. He starts talking about how when a strong man armed, a strong armed man guards his palace, his goods are in peace. And he's giving a picture here. This is the, the parable that I'm talking about. He's giving a picture of Satan here, guarding a sinner, keeping him captive, keeping him enslaved. That's a picture of our condition as sinners. We're helpless in the grasp of Satan. But then he goes on to talk about, then he goes on to talk about how when a stronger than he, a stronger than Satan, comes upon Satan and overcomes him, he completely disarms him. And he divides his spoils. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about himself. Himself, the stronger than Satan, coming and destroying the kingdom of Satan. That's what he does when he comes into a sinner's life. Jesus Christ is a stronger than Satan and he overcomes Satan and he completely disarms him and the sinner becomes his own. Dear fellow believers, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us by his Holy Spirit. He has delivered us from all the power of the devil. And thus he has made us his own property. That's why we call him our Lord. And that means, congregation, that means that we owe him everything, doesn't it? We owe him our service. We owe him our devotion. We owe him our lives. We owe him our submission. And don't we need, don't we need that reminder? Because I don't know about you, But I know that myself, even as a Christian, I can so often still try to take the throne. We try to do things still. We try to live life our way. But it's then we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of his supremacy. That it's a rightful supremacy. It's it's then that we need to be reminded why we call him our Lord. Because he has redeemed us. Because he has bought us. Because he has delivered us. We are his. We belong to him, soul and body. And then sin has no right over us. Temptation has no right over us. We call him our Lord. The question is, and I ask myself, As much as anyone this question, we call him our Lord. Are we serving our Lord? The congregation, there is no better master. There is no better master than him. You see, his supremacy is not just a unique and a rightful supremacy. It's also, and this is now our third point, it's also a comforting supremacy supremacy. And this is important to emphasize too, because, because being described being described as the property of Jesus doesn't sound very comforting at first glance, does it? It sounds rather cold, rather, rather uncomforting. I mean, if Jesus just views us as a piece of property, how do we know he won't just get rid of us, especially when, when our hearts are still have so many weeds and, and thistles and, and sins? How, how do we know he'll watch us and, and keep us? Congregation, the wonderful truth is that Christ's supremacy as our Lord is not only a rightful supremacy, it's also so richly comforting. You see, you see, being the property of Christ doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we're disposable to him. How could he ever dispose of those, of those whom he purchased with his own blood? Being the property of Christ's congregation means that we're unchangeably loved by him. It means we're appointed. We're appointed, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, not to wrath, but to salvation. It means being the property of Christ means we're cherished by him. It means he will take care of us. It means he will defend us. It means he will sanctify us. It means he will never forsake us. It means he will preserve us. And he will do this all of our life long. No matter what trials he sends our way. Because he is our Lord. And he will not give up his supremacy. No man shall pluck my sheep out of my hand. He will not give up his supremacy. Not in any situation. Not even in death. And that's Paul's point. That's Paul's point when he tells the Thessalonians don't grieve as those without hope over the death of your fellow believers. Because when the Lord returns those believers who have died they're going to be the the first ones to meet him. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive will will be caught up and and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, our Lord. Our Lord. In the air and so what so we shall ever be with the Lord that's the comfort do you see that's the comfort we may have when we call Christ our Lord it's the comfort that he will take us to be with him that's what 1st Thessalonians 5 verse 10 tells us it tells us that Christ died for us so that what so whether we wake or sleep we should live together with him doesn't that make the supremacy of Jesus Christ so comforting maybe you are here as a struggling believer maybe you are here you're afraid of what might happen to you maybe you've had to suffer something you wished you wish you never had to suffer maybe you're facing a trial you don't want. Well, then let these words of Paul concerning our Lord Jesus Christ be a comfort to you. He is supreme. He will help you, He will care for you, and whatever happens, He will make sure that one day you will live together with Him in glory because you are His and He is supreme. So trust for those of you who are here tonight and have not truly called Jesus your Lord, I urge you in the name of Christ to bow your knee to him today. It's not, congregation, it's not too good to be true. Even now, as a supreme, only begotten Son and Lord, He calls you, and He calls you personally, and He calls you sincerely. He means it. He means it. Come to me. With Him there is salvation. With Him there is the right, the power, to become the children of God. With Him there is eternal protection and preservation. With Him there is blessing and life everlasting. Oh, then hear Him. Hear him calling, even now, come to me. Believe in me. And come, believe. Because what do the scriptures say? Blessed, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. O oh, exalted and glorious Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come in humility before you. What a great and glorious supreme Son of God, the only eternal and natural Son of God, our Lord. What a great God you are. As we come before you this, after this word, O oh Lord, we pray that you would take it and that you would cause it to enter deeply, deeply into our hearts. To the hearts of those here who are not yet yours, we pray for them. We pray, O oh Spirit of God, that you would work even now. Draw them, draw them to yourself. And Lord, forgive us, forgive us for the times, all the times we try to be supreme. Help us, help us to rest in you. Also in our struggles, in our trials and troubles, whatever they are, Father. We pray that you would help us to rest in our Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting that He will take care of us. He will defend us. He will preserve us. And He will take us to be with Him forever. One day. Help us in this week, O Lord, to live in a way that shows that we don't just call You our Lord, we also serve You as our Lord. And we pray that also in the times that we sin. We would not despair, but we would go to Christ, to go to the one who is perfect and who calls us to come. We ask this in Jesus' name alone. Amen.